Welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. My guest today is uh, Ian Satchel, all the way from Darwin, Australia. Ian is an adjunct professor at the Sustainable Minerals Institute of the University of Queensland in Australia. He advises governments and business in Australia and Asia on policy and practice relating to resources development, infrastructure, energy, and responses to climate change. Ian was formerly the CEO of the International Mining for Development Centre based at the University of Queensland and the University of Western Australia and funded by the Government of Australia. The IM4DC, as it was known, supported developing nations to transform their extractive resources and endowments into inclusive and sustainable economic social development. And it was in this context that I had the pleasure of meeting Ian a couple of years ago in Perth. Ian, it's a pleasure to have you and I look forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Sheila. It's good to talk with you again and to talk on matters that really do matter to resource-rich countries that are looking to develop their mineral resources and to do well from resources development. And I know that you and I have both worked in this field for many years to work with both developing and developed countries to do well from mining as well as doing mining well. That's fantastic. So let's start there then, using your experience. As our listeners know, the subject of today is local content policies in mineral oil and gas projects these have become quite prolific and i wondered if you could give us your sense of what do people mean when they say local content well i know what how i define local content and i think it's defined certainly in australia but i I define it as all of the goods services skills and labor that is sourced locally near the customer operation within a, a wider region or a nation rather than from other places outside that nation. So in that sense, there can be layers of local content, content from very close to a major project, content from a sub-national region, such as a, a state or a province, and content from within a national economy. Now, the more the goods, services and workers we source from within the immediate region around the centre of demand like a mine, that's good. But practically, local content often needs to be defined over a a wider geographic area. That's simply because many areas cannot supply all that's needed and content needs to be drawn in from a much wider area. This is an interesting thing you say because I, in a way I empathize, I often think that while local content per se is quite logical and rational policy departure point, the failure to define locality in more clearer terms, and for that matter, the failure to be more specific about the nature of the content is an inherent shortcoming in the policies. Am I right? Look, I think there is in that a local community, local chamber of commerce, would like to have that community and the businesses within it supply as much as possible to the resources operation. But it's it's often not possible. But that's taking a, a, a narrow view of what that region, the local community and a host nation should be looking for from a mining operation. 
I contend that's not that it's not just about local contents. It should be about how to maximize value over time, which includes local content, but it also includes building capability, capability amongst supply firms, capability within supply chains, skills capability within the local workforce to build up the ability of businesses and workers and infrastructure to supply local content. So it's not just saying, well, give us what you can. And if you can't give us that, then we'll go elsewhere. It's about working with businesses, with local and provincial government, uh, with workers, with the education institutions, so that education standards enable people more easily to be trained. So it's about building value and using local content as the core of that. But of course, value has a much wider definition, but local content certainly is right in the middle of value maximization. That's fantastic. So one of the similarities between the African continent and the Australian continent is not just the vastness of these two land masses, but that they are also very rich in natural resources. And so I wanted to get a sense from you, given the research you've done both in Australia, Africa and Latin America, is this local content drive peculiar to developing nations? And if not, how do developed nations like Australia approach the notion of local content, especially in what is also a federated system of government? Yeah, look, it's not unique to the developing world. I think all resource-rich countries look to maximise the value of their resources, not just from royalties, but also from building economies around resources development. And so Australia certainly has strong local content policies. There's a national general policy, but mostly local content is driven by each of the states and territories in Australia. And because of our constitution, they, they're not allowed actually to restrict movement of goods or services across borders. So while some politicians and governments talk about local content as a local concept, in reality, local content is a national concept because uh, if, if content comes in from elsewhere in Australia, it is deemed as local. But as I said before, local content is not the only way to generate value. Uh, there are a number of other ways to generate value. And if we just take a simple local content approach, we're missing out on a lot of value that can be derived. And so Australia and its states and territories are moving to a more holistic view of how we get value over time from resources operations, from hubs of resources development um, to really maximize value, but also to help create economies that can ride through the inevitable closure of particular uh, resources operations. That's certainly understandable. Now, of course, we are talking about local content in the context of extractives. Is this a structure's peculiar uh, policy or do we find that local content is also fairly common in other industries? I think it's some can be less common in other industries and you're right, it, it, it is applied most often to the resources sector and resources operations often are in remote and rural regions. So local content has some you know, particular 
relevance and importance to those regions where this resources, a resources operation might be the largest economic activity. But local content is also applied, certainly in Australia, to delivery of infrastructure, to procurement by government. And we, you know, government does procure a lot of goods and services as well as infrastructure. And I've also seen it amongst major firms such as manufacturers and retailers looking to appeal to their customers, but also to be good corporate citizens by procuring things like food locally and selling local foodstuffs in local areas and that they have found is a big a big customer attraction people like to eat especially fresh food that is sourced from the local area and just my local supermarket here selling beer i note that it has moved to source beer from the local microbreweries around darwin because that's what local people seem to want to purchase Exactly. So, you know, the whole debate about local content, some people think that it bucks the trend, that rather than prescribe policies, a better and more sustainable approach to boosting local economies and adding value would instead be to be more competitive and focus not on pegging value addition to projects, but instead to peg them around robust industrial development policies. And that failure to do so means that the value add is not sustainable. What does research tell us about that, Ian? Look, it's quite interesting. I agree with you, Sheila. If you just prescribe local content or prescribe certain other behaviors by a mining company, they are more likely to just go for a compliance approach. But if you adopt a value creation approach and the mining company can see that it's going to be in the region or in the host nation or province for a long time, that's fertile ground for strong partnerships where you do utilize the major economic stimulus and the demand for all of the different sorts of goods and services to build capability to supply other mines or other oil and gas operations, but also to supply infrastructure, to supply the aviation sector, to supply the transport sector, to supply the infrastructure sector. And as you say, you build up industrial capability and that is actually beneficial for mining companies because the greater capacity that can be built, the cheaper it's going to be for that mining company to operate in especially in remote regions because it's got local greater local capability but it also enables the community to be less dependent on a single mining operation for example and by growing capacity to be able to supply multiple mining operations and indeed multiple industries and economic sectors and so what gets left behind is a much more economically resilient adaptive and robust layer, if you like, of, of, of technology and skills that then can be applied. And indeed, it can even help attract in new investment because the investors know that the capacity exists there in terms of companies, the infrastructure and the skills that they need. So pretty much everyone has talked to about local content and value add, you know, agrees that conceptually, these are non-brainers. 
but few people are able to give me evidence of success. How important is it when we have these policies that we monitor and track performance in order that we can plow back those lessons into future policies? Who is tracking the actual impact of local content? Yes, I, I, I agree. There's not enough tracking. There are some exceptions, and I think the Supplier Excellence Program in Chile is one of those. But in the end, what gets counted gets managed. And if it's not counted, it's impossible to manage something properly. And as you imply, Sheila, there have been many, I think, quite well-meaning local content initiatives that have fallen way short of their potential simply because they were more a statement of intent than a strategy or have failed in their execution or simply don't have a monitoring evaluation research and learning process built in that's a bit of jargon but what it means is counting it what are the results telling us and what are we learning from it but it's not simply a matter of counting dollars spent or people employed locally if you like just the inputs but we also need to ensure that local content delivers impact. And that, that is, it builds, as I said before, supplier capacity, builds a skilled workforce, delivers useful infrastructure and services, and enables an economy to exist beyond the, the life of that particular customer resources operation. So monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning process needs above all to measure impact and if the results are telling us that the desired outcomes are not being achieved, then change needs to be made. That's about counting, measuring impact, and managing and being prepared to make change to actually achieve the objectives that, that uh, you're seeking. So I'm mindful of time. So by way of wrapping up, I wanted to go back to your roots, so to speak, as a researcher and say, you know, when it comes to natural resources, especially in developing countries, the issues can be very emotive. What is the role then of researchers and fact-based policy? How can we balance the reality of popular demand and high expectations with the reality of fact-based policy such that we end up in the right place? I thought you might share your wisdom with us there. <laughs> yes, look, we all struggle with this because political populism, public opinion tends to drive many government decisions and there is a need, there, there is definitely a need to be measuring, to be using evidence to develop policy and if the evidence points us in another direction, to be explaining to a variety of audiences, even to the community, well, look, this is what the evidence says. How does, how does that sound to you? Oh, yes. Well, perhaps then this is what we should be doing rather than what is being prescribed on a, on a popular basis. Look, inevitably, public opinion, political populism is going to continue to drive many decisions, but the more we can measure, the more we can make the evidence accessible to people, the more we can talk to people in their own terms, but using strong evidence, the better are going to be decisions and the stronger are going to be the, is going to be the support from the people. And after all, we're doing this, we're developing our economy for one reason, or we should be, and that is for the people, the welfare of the people. 
you know, the more we can talk to people, the more we can explain to people, the better we're going to be and the better we're going to be able to deliver what people want from economic and social development. That's fantastic. Well, Ian, I call that uh, economic imperatives versus uh, the political realities. And you are right to recognize that we are not going to change the world, but what we're going to do is to use facts to try and prove decisions and align policy more with reality than with the politics of the day. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, your day is now coming to an end and mine has just started here in Botswana. And uh, thank you once again for your contribution to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. I'll upload your interview onto the shilapama.com and streamline it and share it with you and your other colleagues. Thank you very much, Ian. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you, Sheila. It's been really, really nice to talk with you again about things that we both regard are important. Thank you for having me. Thank you and goodbye.